Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. On Monday, members of the Electoral College will meet to cast their ballots for President of the United States. That'll be the real presidential election in 2020. What we did on November 3rd, when we went to the polls and voted, was to decide who the electors would be. Here's how it works. According to Article 2 in the Constitution, quote, Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. For Missouri, that means we can appoint 10 presidential electors, one for each of our eight members of the House and our two senators. And our legislature has determined that we'll choose our electors by voting. If you look at Chapter 115 of Missouri's Revised Statutes, you find details about how a political party may certify in writing the names of its 10 nominees for the office of presidential elector. And each nominee for presidential elector then must certify in writing their candidacy for that office. And each of the parties then nominates a presidential candidate whose name then appears on the ballot in November. So when you vote, you're actually voting for a slate of electors who will then turn around and cast their votes for president. The newspapers today are running stories about West Virginia becoming the final state to certify its electors ahead of the Electoral College vote on Monday. Right now, it looks like Joe Biden will receive 306 electoral votes to Donald Trump's 232 electoral votes. But that number could change. Nothing in the Constitution says that an elector must vote for their party's candidate. We might see some who don't. They're called faithless electors. The question of faithless electors whether state law could punish an elector for his or her faithless vote, was the subject of a Supreme Court case over the summer called Chiafalo v. Washington. It consolidated with it another case called Colorado v. Baca, both about whether a state could sanction a presidential elector for casting a ballot in the Electoral College counter to the expressed will of the voters of the state. This came up because in 2016, when members of the Electoral College met in their respective state capitals to cast ballots for the president and the vice president, 10 electors cast faithless votes, counter to their pledge and counter to the expressed will of the voters of their state. This is actually a longstanding tradition in American politics. We've had 174 faithless votes dating back to 1796. What was different about 2016 is that, for the first time, state officials actually enforced state laws penalizing the faithless votes. In the state of Colorado, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Colorado state law requires presidential electors to cast their vote for the candidate who wins the popular vote of the state. But one of the nine electors, Michael Baca, cast his vote for John Kasich instead. And the Colorado Secretary of State, in accordance with state law, discarded his vote on the spot, removed him as an elector, and appointed a new elector in his place. In the state of Washington, where Hillary Clinton also won, Peter Chiafalo and two other electors out of the 12 from the state cast ballots for Colin Powell. The state fined them $1,000 each, but their votes were still counted by Congress. It didn't cancel their votes. As of July 6, 2020, when the case of Chiafalo was decided, 33 states had laws mandating that presidential electors cast ballots for the candidate chosen by the voters of their state. In 16 of those states, 
there's no legal mechanism of enforcement. It's just a request or a requirement in law, but with no teeth, no way to enforce it. In 17 of those states, including Missouri, there's no legal requirement at all. State law just doesn't address anything about faithless electors. In 2010, the Uniform Law Commission drafted the Faithless Presidential Electors Act as a model for states. It would require electors to take a state-administered pledge of faithfulness, cancel any faithless vote, and replace any faithless elector, just as Colorado did with Michael Baca. Whether a state can do that was precisely the question in the consolidated cases of Baca and Chiafalo. To answer that question, we need to look first at the Electoral College as an institution and how it came about in the first place. Here's a brief timeline of the argument at the Constitutional Convention, which took place in Philadelphia from May to September 1787. Four days into the convention, the Virginia plan calls for a national executive to be elected by Congress, so that's put on the table for the first time very early in the convention. The delegates then spend the month of June debating, among other things, whether it should be a single or a plural executive, whether you have multiple people in that office or just one, whether the executive should serve for a seven-year term or a four-year term, whether the executive should be eligible for another term for re-election, and what the method of presidential election or presidential selection would be. They go back and forth about all of this. They consider election by state legislatures or by state governors. And at one point, Alexander Hamilton suggests having electors from specific districts chosen by the people. But then he shocks everyone by saying that the president chosen this way would serve for life. And that idea just gets panned. One of the big concerns they had with each of these methods was the potential for corruption, cabal, and foreign influence. Election by an identifiable body of citizens in office already, in Congress or the governors or the state legislatures, would provide an incentive for bribery or public corruption, make it a target of foreign influence, and might make the national executive subservient to the electing body during the course of the presidential administration. And selection by an existing body brought with it the question of representation, of interest, and how we choose the president, particularly those interests that divide small states and large states, and all the familiar debates about whether the Constitution was going to be national or federal or Republican and all of that. Late in the summer, then, James Madison remarks in his notes on the convention that the only option before us lay between an appointment by electors chosen by the people and an immediate appointment by the people. That was what was left, he thought. All of these pre-existing bodies wouldn't do the trick. So it's left undecided. And then in August, the question of presidential selection is kicked to a committee chaired by New Jersey Delegate David Brearley. It's an 11-member committee on sundry affairs, as it was titled. From that committee, we get the Electoral College. It provides a method of selecting the president through a number of electors chosen from each state, and that number will be equal to the number of senators and representatives in those states. Those electors then cast their ballots in their respective state capitals, and significantly, the electors may not already hold, quote, an office of trust or profit under the United States. The Brearley Committee thought this innovative solution would address a lot of the problems they were worried about. It would be a temporary body of citizens called together for a specific purpose, but meeting in different state capitals. Not knowing advance who the electors would be, their geographic distance, and the fact that they are not already federal office holders would lessen the incentives and opportunities for cabal, corruption, and foreign influence. In defense of the Electoral College and the Federalist Papers, Madison argued that it balanced the interests of large states and small states by adopting the compound ratio used for representation in the national legislature. Hamilton specifically said it would prevent foreign influence by vesting selection in a temporary body capable of exercising deliberation and discernment. And it's that, 
the idea of deliberation and discernment in the electors that brings us back to the question of faithless electors in the cases of Chiafalo and Baca. The key words in Article 2 are these, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. The debate between the electors and the states in these cases hinged on how we understand these words. The electors argued that the idea of being appointed, of being an elector, and of voting by ballot all point to the vesting of discretion in the electors, as someone trusted to exercise judgment and discernment. The states, on the other hand, put emphasis on the fact that electors are appointed in the manner that the legislature thereof may direct. With the power of appointment comes the power of removal, and deciding the manner of appointment may include putting conditions on that appointment, including a pledge of fidelity, removal, and sanctions for violation of the trust. And in an opinion written by Justice Elena Kagan, a unanimous Supreme Court agreed with the states here. The only real debate on the court was whether the state's authority came from Article II of the Constitution or whether the power to condition the office of presidential elector was simply one of the powers, as the Tenth Amendment words it, not delegated to the United States nor prohibited to the states and so left to the states or to the people. That latter argument about the Tenth Amendment was the main contention of Justice Thomas's concurring opinion, which Justice Gorsuch joined. But the rest of the court said that Article II had within it an implied right or power of the states to condition the appointment of presidential elector. After Chiafalo, then, we know that a state may bind its presidential electors to the will of the state's electorate through legal mechanisms that penalize or cancel a faithless vote in the electoral college. And this takes us to a concluding question about the future of the electoral college. There's a movement that some of you are probably familiar with called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. It would be an agreement among states to award the state's electoral votes to the candidate who wins the national popular vote, regardless of which candidate wins the popular vote of each state. Sixteen states controlling 196 electoral votes have adopted this legislation in their own state law, and that would go into effect if and when it's adopted by enough states to control the 270 electoral votes necessary to win the electoral college vote. And this is where one line from Kagan's opinion in Chiafalo becomes important. She wrote this, Washington law penalizing a pledge's breach reflects a tradition more than two centuries old. In that practice, electors are not free agents. They are to vote for the candidate whom the state's voters have chosen. A question now opened by Chiafalo is whether any textual, historical, or structural constitutional principles limit the discretion of a state to award its electoral votes, not to the candidate whom the state's voters have chosen, but to the candidate whom a majority of the voters of the nation as a whole have chosen. And that's a debate I think we should expect to pick up after Monday when the electors meet in their respective state capitals to cast their ballots for president of the United States. That concludes our fall 2020 class. I hope you've learned something about constitutional politics and constitutional law. I've had fun putting this all together and trying to do something a bit different. If you're not a student but you've been listening along, let me know. I'm at DyerJB at Missouri.edu. It's D-Y-E-R-J-B as in boy, DyerJB at Missouri.edu. I'd love to hear your thoughts and hear whether you think it's worth continuing this podcast next semester when I teach a sequel to the class called Constitutional Rights. We'll focus not on structures and powers, but on individual rights claims under the Constitution. And I'm curious if it's worth doing that and putting this out for the world. 
Until then, thanks for listening along and for joining me in this inquiry into the ongoing constitutional project that started in the summer of 1787.